The Late Night Legends podcast is meant for an adult audience only. It may contain sexually oriented content. Content may not be suitable for sensitive listeners. Please be aware of your surroundings. Listener discretion is advised. Podcasting radio show. We are coming to you live from our respective homes. I'm not even going to pretend to make up a location um, because I'm absolutely thrilled with tonight's guest. I've been very excited and it just keeps getting more excited. Exciting for me the more that I actually did research into what you research. So, anyway, but uh, let's talk about what we have going on, Kara. Um, this past weekend, we went to the Paranormal Cirque. So anybody that follows me on Facebook, Instagram, um, Hella Obscura saw pictures from the event and it was so fun. It was the first time I've been seeing the ads for the Paranormal Circus for years. And finally we went and it was super cool. It was a lot of fun. I want to do it, it every year now. It was not a lot of paranormal, but a lot of horror based stuff, which was yeah. great. It's like which I was very excited. Circus. Yeah, so it was like Cirque du Soleil for horror fans, mm-hmm. but then at the end there was some dancing involved, which was a little <laughs> it off. Seemed out of place. It just it was a little out of place, but that's all right because everybody performed really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Ashley, what do you? Ashley, you haven't been here forever. What's going on with you? I know. Sorry. I went to visit my family in a uh, a very, very small Midwest town called Lima, Ohio, because I know a lot of our listeners also obviously are Glee fans. Uh, (laughs) I'm so happy. (laughs) I'm so happy to be back with you guys. Um, I uh, not a whole lot going on for me other than uh, my Britney Spears shirt. And it has to do with our podcast because it's spooky. She's sing- single. She's back on the market. I She's divorcing that, Sam. So that's that's my big, that's what I'm bringing to the show today. Goodbye. Well, and they had an ironclad prenup, so he doesn't have to get any money from her. That's right. No spousal support, Sammy boy. No. That's the important part. Frank? <laughs> uh, the only thing I have to report is uh, our podcast is now on iHeartRadio. So if you like that platform and want to listen to us there, just search Late Night Legends and you'll find us. We're there as of, I think, yesterday or the day before. Probably yesterday, I'd say. But that's all I have to report. Fancy, fancy. All right. Well, uh, for my weekend, yes, the Cirque, uh, Cirque Paranormal, Paranormal Cirque, whatever it was. Paranormal um, Cirque, but I always I just so. want to say Paranormal Circus. I know. Mm-hmm. That was a great deal of fun. Uh, we had an absolute blast. Um, we have several things coming up, which is also extraordinarily exciting for me. Um, you can check out a lot of them. 
uh, via Hella Obscura for uh, Kara and I have some adventures coming up. So, and we'll get into that soon because it's also going to coincide with an adventure by our guest. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And now he's worried. I know. Um, he's very worried. He's very concerned. <laughs> So our guest, Chad Lewis, you guys, he is an author. Um, I'm going to let Jenny probably sing his praises a little bit more, but we got to meet him. We connected on Facebook, he and I, but most importantly, we got to meet him at uh, Paranormal Chicago Paracon by Jack Chavez. I don't have a Chad Lewis shirt, so I had to wear a Paranormal Chicago shirt. It ties in. Um, and Jenny got a look at all of the books and everything and just the rest is history. And Jenny has so much to talk about. Um, I'm sure I have some of the same questions, but Jenny's been reading. So <laughs> take it away. Oh, thank you so much. First of all, I love the fact that, um, that you are describe yourself as a researcher and a lecturer as well, because that's amazing. I don't think people understand how much research it sort of takes to go into um, a lot of the topics that you go to. So I'd love to hear just kind of a little bit about you and what you do. Sure, well, thank you for having me and greetings from the Northwoods of Wisconsin. Um, I actually blame my interest on the paranormal in Wisconsin because not only do we have the UFO capital of the world here, we have three of them that all claim to be the UFO capital of the entire world. So when I was in high school, I grew up near one of these capitals and I was interested in people seeing UFOs at the nearby town. So I started going there, interviewing them, and I happened to start studying psychology at college the next fall. And that's what I was interested in, why some people believe in the strange and unusual and others do not. And that just led me to um, doing my master's thesis on students' belief in the paranormal and then presenting my findings, which people would come up after the program and say, I need help. My home's haunted or I saw some creature in the woods. Could you help me identify it? And it really went from there. That's just so amazing. That was one of the things that was fascinating to me was that you started with a basis in psychology and that's so cool um, because folklore and sightings and mythology is so tied into where we're at, what we're thinking, what we're feeling at the time. Um, I have to ask about this one thing because what immediately had me honed in on your table was you had a vampire kit that you had made and it was just i let's see i i had just gone like maybe a year ago to a ripley's believe it or not and they had you know a little thing on on vlad the impaler and and so they had the the uh, vampire kit and so i learned that this was something that people carry can you describe what it is and why you had it because i find that story fascinating i make my own it's a vampire hunting kit and it's mostly for design although i have brought it to alleged vampire locations around the the country when i got back from transylvania that kind of gave me the idea of putting one together and um basically think of an old cutlery or silverware box the the wood box that opens up with the velvet 
padding underneath and that's what it basically is and you have your holy water you can have your garlic a steak a crucifix or a cross the holy bible in mine i often have uh little seeds due to the fact that vampires are said to have ocd so if you can throw seeds down you have to stop and count them so it might give you a couple seconds to uh to run around and uh, make your way through and of course uh, the consecrated ground, the cemetery dirt. In vampire lore, one legend is they can't cross over this dirt, so you could put it around you, or the belief that you can only kill them on cemetery dirt. So either way, kind of uh, kind of uh, covered there. And I say it's a, I put it on my book table quite a bit because it just gets people conversation piece going. And I did a book signing about 20 years ago when my first book came out in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And it was a local radio station. They invited me to a outdoor boat and RV show. And which for a haunted book to be there, you know, everyone's coming there looking for an RV or what boat they're going to upgrade to. And I had a table of books and right next to me, another table of vampire hunting kits. And just because they gave me two tables, I didn't have enough books to fill both. So why not? <laughs> you would not believe how many of those kits left empty handed. Like people coming up that you would never think would be interested in the supernatural, specifically vampires, buying it for their office or their spouse loves it. I was just amazed that uh, a hunting and fishing camping type show would be the best place to sell vampire hunting kits. <laughs> It must have been plagued there. I don't know. The perfect <laughs> gift for someone who has everything, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, you never know what you're going to encounter uh, on the road. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, and I was going to say, well, I mean, these are people that spend time in the woods. So they know there's things out there that we can't explain. And the vampire kit might just be the right fit. Um, I was going to ask, okay, so how many things are there? Should I say things or cryptids? That have things with counting because don't the rougarou you should always have up to 13 things or whatever it is is it 13 so how many so i was like i just thought about that recently with for them how many how many of these how many cryptids have a, guys <laughs> have, a have a thing about counting is that yes. common well it's, it's common in the supernatural obviously numbers um whether uh, they do a lot of supernatural dares where you have to do things in order for the legend to come true. And there's a, a goat man creature down in Illinois where if you go to the state park three times, that's when you'll see him. So obviously in threes, uh, the old Snallygaster stories out in Maryland from the 17 and 18, early 1900s talked about having to point, put a seven pointed hex sign on your barn to keep the snallygaster that's the only thing that would bother it so numbers play in quite a uh, quite a bit in the supernatural and cryptids uh, more generally as well yeah that's fascinating something that i hadn't even really ever thought of what park do i have to go to three times to see the cryptid ah uh, yeah you have to go to Kiwani, uh illinois right outside their town is a small little state park um you can see the goat man a Kiwani video i did where i camped there uh looking for it and luckily or unluckily you know i survived but um 
It's some people say you have to go there three times. Others say that if you see it three times, you'll die after the third sighting. Oh, wow. Oh. So all these numbers and, and times are very important as well, whether it's the anniversary of a, a murder, tragic death, untimely accident, something like that, or obviously at midnight, if you can do it on the witching hour, all of these things, all the way dating back to the Jersey Devil being the 13th child of Mother Leeds. So these have a long history of numbers playing a significant portion or a significant role in what we believe in. Um, I'm going to completely take it in a totally different direction from the numbers thing because yeah. because this was my next big thing is that you have done some research and I believe some sort of cryptid searching, I suppose, in Belize. Did I read this correctly? Firstly, um, you looked for the Tata Duende, which I actually have... Um, I actually told a story about that on this podcast where I was visiting a ruin and our guide grew up in a small village and actually they lost a little girl to this creature. Can you please expound on that? Well, the Tata Duende is a diminutive creature wearing a sombrero. Uh, he's a protector of their jungles and uh, forests over in Central and South America and Central America often will have a machete with him and so that if you see, you have to wave this with your four fingers because if he sees you have a thumb, he'll come and rip it off. But uh, oftentimes he'll protect the jungle and the forest and the uh, rainforest. And what's interesting is the, the story you told there of the young girl disappearing. When I was there, um, everywhere I went, people took it very seriously. When I asked about the Duende, they said, don't go looking for it. What are you doing? Stay away. And I was at a, what we would consider a national park here in the U.S. And one of the forest rangers told me that when he was a kid, he grew up right down the road from the park and he was out playing with some friends in the backyard and it butted up against the forest. And he said, all of a sudden, while they were playing, they heard music and they felt like the Duende was singing or playing his um, banjo or guitar with him. And the kids started in a trance walking toward the Duende. The Duende was just lurking in the woods, you know, enticing this kid in like he was some siren of the seas. And all of a sudden the kid's mom yelled, time to come home and eat. And it snapped him out of the spell. And he said he ran home crying, you know, shivering, telling his mom that the Duende tried to abduct him. So. In many cultures, it's still very feared and something you shouldn't play around with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, our, you know, my guide was talking about it. Like it was when he was a child. So, I mean, it was, you know, not too terribly long ago. Um, but also the other thing that was interesting to me is specifically about Belize. Um, you have to understand that I've been going since I was a kid. I absolutely adore that country. Like beyond any um so obviously i'm going to be very fascinated with that but but also the i believe the hellhounds is that what yeah so here in america like obviously hellhounds large black dogs usually with red or sometimes glowing green eyes they thought that they do the devil's bidding that they are a harbinger of death a death omen that 
they guard portals to hell and then if you see them it means you or someone you know is going to die very shortly but in central america when i was there a lot of the stories of cadeos were of black and white ones that sometimes white ones would guide people home at night that maybe had drank too much and got lost but if a black one showed up it meant doom was coming to you and it was the same type of thing where people did not want to talk about it and in many cultures just mentioning something is enough to kind of bring it into reality that and that's especially with the windigo that you don't want to say its name because then it knows that you know kind of when you go looking for the weird the weird come looking for you type thing so i was amazed at how many people in rural areas were still terrified of these creatures now of course some of the bigger cities it's like walking into new york and asking about bigfoot sightings probably not going to get a lot but in a lot of the areas where it's still wild these beliefs were very prevalent yeah absolutely i'm i'm on board with that and it's funny that you bring that one up because that is the book that that i that i bought like immediately was your book on the wendigo um and it had me hooked right away because you were talking about um trying to be sensitive to all the different cultural um you know myths and lore and and you know hey do we really have a right to sort of be writing about this and ultimately yes and i thought it was just a really well written book i can't say enough about it um but if you could take me on that sort of journey a little bit that would be really cool oh yeah so the windigo is perhaps the most feared and deadly legend to ever set foot in north america uh, began with the first nations people of canada spread all through that country and then made its way to the great lakes and northern states of, um, of america here and it was so old that they don't even know the origin of it and it's perhaps the most complex and gigantic legend i've ever encountered and it was for my colleague and my co-author kevin nelson and i kind of stuttered and stopped on this book about a dozen times over a decade before we finally decided to do it because we thought it was too daunting the legend was just too huge couldn't do it in a book and then we thought were we even the right ones to do it being it that it's a first nation legend but um, other researchers have done books on it but it's mostly scholarly books done on uh, from anthropologists or sociologists looking at was Wendigo really a reflection of a woman's place in the marriage and in indigenous cultures? You know, really mundane, kind of boring stuff. Nobody looked at it like, could this have been real? So many people saw it, believed in it, and killed at for it. That why why do we assume it wasn't real? So, the Wendigo is probably the hardest creature to describe because it's so complex and. The Wendigo that exists today does not exist 400 years ago. It was completely different. One example is today, if you Google Wendigo, uh, most likely you're going to find antlers on it or deer horns or elk looking creature. In the old original lore, it was more of a skeletal, thin, uh, emaciated creature that was the embodiment of cold ice that it would only walk in a straight line because nothing or no one could stop it. Why wouldn't it? It could be as big as it wanted from eight feet tall to taller than a treetop. 
and it could come in a physical form like a flesh and blood bear or moose and when it was in a physical form it could kill you but also worse yet it could come in a spirit form and possess you and slowly turn you into a wendigo and we have hundreds of documented cases of people killing one another because they believed that that person was turning into a wendigo and that if they wouldn't have killed this person it would have infected the entire city tribe community and they'd all be dead so it was almost as though this was something you had to do that you were doing a, a hero's work uh, so to speak so we have hundreds of years of the the wendigo and just dozens of some of the most gruesome and gory cases you could ever believe well a lot of that like a lot of the wendigo lore uh has to do with cannibalism right one of the ways you could become a wendigo was to resorting to cannibalism when times were tough game was nowhere to be found food was scarce if you resorted to cannibalism you would turn into a wendigo but also you could dream about the wendigo in many cultures because in many cultures, the dream world and the waking world were of equal significance. So if you had a dream about the Wendigo visiting you, well, you were doomed. Also, a powerful shaman could conjure it to come after you. So it might be you'd send it after an enemy or better yet, you'd send it to an enemy's area where it would scare away all the game so everybody would start starving and resorting to cannibalism and then become a Wendigo as well. So there were numerous ways you could become a Wendigo, but the most sensational was that of cannibalism. Now, how how much of a tie do you see in between that and like the legend of of the Skinwalker? Uh, very similar, but Skinwalker is definitely a native tradition and definitely more southwestern, where the all the stories of the Wendigo have to do with winter. Not that it wouldn't attack in the summer, and it, it did, but it was the embodiment of ice and winter. It was thought that its heart was encased in ice, and one of the ways you could kill it was to defrost its heart, many different manners of doing that, but it was always in cold climates. We never had stories of someone in Florida, you know, eating bath salts, becoming a Wendigo, chewing off the face of somebody. Warm weather, even here in Wisconsin, when we had some weird cases of Ed Gein and Jeffrey Dahmer. The cannibalism might have been there, especially with Dahmer, probably not with Gein, but um, it was never brought up the Wendigo because it was the cold, the isolation, and the belief system that they believed in it so much that we have stories of people that heard there was a Wendigo in the region. They didn't see it. They didn't hear it. They just heard it was there. Rather than go out of their lodging and hunt for game or collect food, they starve to death because they'd rather do that than to encounter a possible Wendigo. That's how much fear was. Let me give you one quick story. of I was in northern Minnesota doing a program by the Canadian border on Minnesota creatures. After the program, a woman came up to me and said that when she was a young child, she would play with her friends and her father always said that if they heard the cattle being struck in the woods, they needed to go home because that meant the Wendigo was on its way. And she said she never heard it, but she always listened. And she said that story stuck with her. She was in her 80s when she told me this story. And that story of her as a kid stuck with her for 70 plus years because it was so terrifying. 
And I always I'm fascinated by those that show that folklore is more than just you know what these creatures are, but what effect they have on us. Yeah, that's astounding. Um, yeah, unbelievable. What is one of your favorite folklore tales to talk about? I'm a big fan. Oh, let me that phrase that. Um, I am fascinated by the case of Swift Runner. And if you know anything about Wendigo, you probably have heard the name Swift Runner. He was a, a Cree trapper in the late 1870s up in Alberta, Canada. And he ends up going crazy, uh, being possessed by the Wendigo, consuming and killing his entire family, um, believing that he was a, a Wendigo. Even when ducks were plentiful in the spring, he still had one son remaining, but he ended up uh, disposing of him and eating him, believing that he was a, a Wendigo. And the story is very detailed, very gruesome and graphic. Um, you probably don't want to listeners to ever hear it, but I'm fascinated by that because I had been researching Swift Runner um, for a decade, a decade and a half. I've written about him, looked at all the research I could find. I appeared in a video game talking about Swift Runner until dawn. Uh, the video game, if you beat that Windigo game, I'll pop up and talk about Swift Runner. But it wasn't until just before COVID in 2019 that I finally had a chance to make it to the area of his winter quarters up in Alberta, Canada. And my colleague Kevin Nelson and I were there. And it wasn't until I was standing in the place where he grew up and loved and killed and died that it fully hit me that... Um, at the end, it was just Swift Runner and his middle son. And the son had to consume his other family members and knew he was next. But he was seven years old, starving to death with his father. There was nothing he could do. And just standing there on the cold winter day I was there, you know, it gave me chills that still here in Wisconsin during the, the winter, I get thrown back to that spot because I wasn't prepared for what was going to hit me because the last 20, 30 years, I've visited serial killers' homes and the most mundane, gruesome, murderous stuff you've ever heard of. So I thought I was immune to all this. But just standing there, something really hit me where uh, Kevin and I went back to our lodging that night and I started writing the chapter right about Swift Runner right then because I wanted to be in that that process. But he's probably the best known person turning Wendigo or going Wendigo. Um, yeah, so uh, that's one that I really enjoy looking into because there's so much to it of, you know, mental illness versus Wendigo versus something else. And uh, I think I could spend the rest of my life researching Swift Runner and never fully realizing the entirety of the case. Wow. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Gruesome, but absolutely fascinating as, you know, a lot of spooky things are. Um, I kind of feel like I've been monopolizing the questions. Do you guys have anything that you wanted to know, or should I just keep going with what do I want to know? <laughs> One swift runner question. What happened to him? So spring came, there's plenty of ducks. He still ate his last kid. What happens after that? Swift runner was about 40 winters of age at that time. And once he disposed of his, his last child, he wandered into a, a mission. St. Albert's mission, and he gave this heartbreaking story of his family all starving to death in the winter. But 
that normally would have been nothing uncommon. People would have believed it. But the the townsfolk looked at him and he didn't look like he had just suffered through a winter. He was over six feet tall, 200 pounds. If anything, he looked healthier than ever. So they kind of thought something was weird that he was the only one you'd think you'd let your children survive. So they talked him into guiding them back to his winter quarters. And when they got there, it was something out of a horror movie scene. Bones everywhere. Most of the bones had been cracked in half and he would suck the marrow out of the bones to survive. They found the boiling pots, his kettles caked with skin and human remains. So they realized he had done what they thought he had done. So they gathered up what little evidence they could and then buried the rest because they had to carry it all back. So they brought him to Fort Saskatchewan and they put him on trial and he was found uh, convicted and he was sentenced to be hanged. And they built a gallows and took his life at the end of a gallows. And then the mystery was, what did they do with the body? And all the reports of that time is they simply dumped him on the edge of the fort to get rid of him. Let his own people, as they said, deal with it. So we don't know what happened because most of the time, suspected Wendigos, no matter how they were killed, they had to be cremated. So nothing was left. Otherwise, it would just go back into the woods and wait for its next victim. So we don't know. His body was dumped there, but it was a 40 degrees below zero when they did the hanging. So they didn't just dig a grave in the frozen ground. So we don't know what happened. But fascinating that the fort is no longer there, but the recreation of it is. They've recreated the fort back to its original uh, dimensions. And many of the staff members told us that they often have ghostly experiences there. And when people that are more psychically in tune show up, they still believe Swift Runner's spirit is at the uh, Saskatchewan, Fort Saskatchewan area. So that's always fascinating too, but I don't know what became of his body. My guess is that um, they chopped him up and buried him separately all over, or certainly just burned him to a crisp because they would have been repulsed by his body because he was a Wendigo, still scary. He could rise up, you know, they could not kill him, but at the same time, they wouldn't want to leave him there in case he did come back to life. And there's a, how, I don't know how gruesome we can get on this, but there's a, yeah, no limits, there was a, a, yeah, a famous Wendigo story, a moose tooth. And he was turning Wendigo. He was sick. He was on the ground. They were trying to save him, bringing in their best medicine, their best uh, shamans to heal him and he kept saying things of if i get up off of this ground i'm going to kill and eat all of you none of you will be left so they tried for days and weeks to cure him they could not do it so finally they uh killed him and they went a little overboard in the fact that he was hit in the head with an axe and killed split open his skull but that wasn't enough so then they took the axe out hit him in the chest um, with the axe, stabbed him with a knife. That wasn't good enough. So they staked him to the ground and poured hot tea in the axe hole to defrost the icy heart. That wasn't good enough. So they stabbed him again, chained him to the ground and decapitated him. And this took place all through the night. So in stages. So they did a little bit and they said, oh, that's not going to work. He's going to come back. Then they did a little bit more and thought, well, we're still scared. 
somebody has to watch him. So they took all those steps because they truly believed that that was what was necessary to stop him from coming back. Truly graphic stuff. I mean, this is Love stuff it. out of horror like movies. Rasputin level stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like so, so many of these uh, creatures and these entities in folklore and mythology just took so much to kill them. And it was so gruesome how they would die. Just obliterating the bodies in every way shape and form and we think of these things as hundreds of years ago superstitions from a long time ago but one of my favorite cases in my neighboring state of minnesota happened in the 1920s when they suspected a woman was a vampire from the grave and uh francis block she had died and her family lived in a superstitious area of winona minnesota on the east end and all of a sudden her brother started dying one after another after she died so neighbors said your daughter is a vampire she's coming as a death siren enticing her siblings to join her and when they finally the family was down to their last remaining son they thought we better go out there and do something so the neighbor said all you have to do is go out to the graveyard and dig up your daughter and chop off her head and bury it separately from the body so the dad went out there and tried, but when he got out there, he dug up the body and she was in such horrible shape. He thought there's no way she could be a vampire. So he went back, but then the son got further ill. So they went back and thought it was maybe the first son who died. So they dug him up. We're going to do the same thing. But anyway, um, the son ended up dying. They didn't desecrate either of the bodies, but the police went back out there and found, made sure that they didn't molest the bodies. And they had found a white cross indented into her chin from burial, which was meant to prevent her from being a, a vampire. And the craziest thing is the father was never charged. In, in Minnesota in the 1920s, it was not illegal for you to dig up as many people as you wanted. As long as you didn't harm them, you, could, you were free to do so. Now, don't try doing that in Minnesota today. <laughs> The laws have changed, but um, it's fascinating that this was 1920. This wasn't 1720, and the belief was still so strong that a vampire was the cause of the death that he went out and dug up his uh, children. Two things. First of all, um, I enjoy how you know you could dig up as many people as as you wanted you just couldn't do anything to their bodies so you just dug them up and went huh that's the body and it. But yeah there were no laws on the books did they ever figure out what happened to all the kids um well they thought they were dying of natural or uh, diseases and illnesses uh they're all buried there and when i first found out about this case maybe five six years ago um, I talked to a lot of the staff members who work at the cemetery, St. Mary's Cemetery in Winona, and they'd never heard the legend, but they were telling me all sorts of weird mist and fog and balls of light and disembodied voices that would happen at the uh, cemetery. And they didn't even want to get into it because again, they felt like if they talked about it, it became real. So they had to work there every day. So they didn't even want to hear the vampire legend. Oh, which was in yeah. all the newspapers in the 1920s. It was all the newspapers covered it, but nobody took a photo. Uh, the reporters were along with the police 
when they re-dug up the bodies, but no photos must have been allowed at that at that time, I assume, or they were lost to history. I think there was a lot less uh, show me or I don't believe you kind of thing. Like you didn't really have to have like photographic evidence for people to buy in. Um, True. You know, yeah. I'm the same way. I'm, you know, tell me about it. I'm good. I don't, I'm, I'm in right away. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I feel like it was now, of course, it's completely different. Um, what is the scariest thing? I, I don't know if I want scariest thing um, that you've kind of come like face to face with where you're like, oh, maybe this was a bad choice of destination. Um, for me, it's always the, the atmosphere, the environment more so than the creatures. Cause in my mind, I truly believe that a werewolf isn't going to kill me because I don't know if I believe in werewolves, but at the same time I could drown looking for them. So another Central America one is I was looking for La Llorona who here in America is usually a woman that drowned her children or they lost them. And she uh, scours the riverbanks and waterways screaming for her lost children. But in this uh, area I was in, she was more of a monster of the woods that she would appear along the riverbanks and as a beautiful woman and lure men into the woods and turn into a giant snake and devour them. So the only way to get, yeah, the only way to get on the lake or the river was at uh, night on a crocodile tour at midnight. I was at a, staying at a monkey sanctuary in the middle of nowhere. And so I show up with the person I was with and it's midnight and um, the river's flooded. So we had to take our tiny canoes and wade out, you know, up to thigh high in the croc infested uh, waters there. Um, and then get in and you're right on the water, just a little miner's light as your your light, terrifying. And you know, I don't know if I was more scared of the, the crocs in the water or the La Llorona, which I didn't end up seeing. I even said to the person I was with, I said, if you're too scared and you want to turn back and go to the sanctuary, I won't hold it against you. Hoping that they say, yeah, let's get the heck out of here. But um, I was just terrible, just the white knuckle paddling the canoe. Um, that was the atmosphere. Um, when I was in Transylvania, um, again, staying in the middle of nowhere, I had to walk through a woods to get into town to get some supplies and it was getting dark and I got in the woods and in the beginning I'm thinking this is great the moon's out I'm walking in trance how fun is this and then your mind starts playing tricks where every branch breaking was Vlad the Impaler coming to get you so I, I ran to town got the supplies and it was dark by then and I ran back uh, as much as I could again I didn't think the vampire was going to get me but the same time I was just truly scared and for me, that's half the fun. I always say, if you're not getting scared at these places, you're not trying hard enough. That They're downright creepy. I mean, that's part of the reason people enjoy them, either consciously or subconsciously. Well, yeah, and you feel like you're part of the myth when you're there. It's it's an unusual feeling where you feel like, yes, okay, this is the thing that's happening. It shifts over into reality. I I. Love that. Both of those trips sound like heaven to me, by the way, and terrifying, but absolute heaven, especially the monkey sanctuary. But besides well, that, you're absolutely right about the, the feel and the, the belief of it, that 
you can sit back and say you're in Chicago and you can sit back thinking, how would people believe vampires exist? That's just crazy. And then you find yourself in the culture, talking to the people, seeing the environment, seeing uh, all the, the culture, the history, the belief. And it's quite easy to fall into the belief of uh, what's happening and to be a little spooked by it. And I think that's fascinating. A lot of people like to dine into cultures and, you know, enjoy the food and the customs. And this is just another extension of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were in the, um, the ATM cave in Belize, um, which is amazing, but we were all the way into the cave and they're small groups. And, and the guide had, he had two, you know, flashlights. He had, he had the one that he was leading us with. And then he had another one that looked like it was one of those that mimics like flame. Right. And he was talking about all of these creation myths and all of the lore and how much importance caves had to a lot of, you know, first peoples and, and indigenous people. Um, you know, and he turned off the big flashlight and took and turned on the torch one and you could see things moving in the dark. It was just that one little switch of perception in light. And it was just a completely different world. And you get it. You go, oh, okay. All right. Yes, I could buy into this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I'm very jealous of this being your career. <laughs> It doesn't have to be far-flung places. Um, there's a, a a lake on a, a Mississippi River here in Wisconsin. It divides my state from Minnesota. It's called Lake Pepin. And they have a serpent that's called Peppy, the lake monster of Lake Pepin. And there's a $50,000 reward offered for its capture. But uh, it's been, we have, you know, written accounts dating back to the Civil War of it and indigenous accounts dating back even uh, further. But what's interesting is even if you don't believe in monsters, you know, when you're swimming in the lake and a little tree branch or something brushes against your toes in the water, it's hard not to kind of be looking around thinking, is that the the monster? So um, it doesn't have to be, it can be right in your own backyard that some of these legends really spook you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so on board with that. Um, so the Loch Ness, um, Nessie, obviously, um, there's some theories, and we've talked about this a little bit on the show, about there being an actual creature for a long period of time. And perhaps it was sort of the last remnants of a species that we thought to be extinct and just sort of slowly dying out because there wasn't enough you know, population to to keep going what do you think when you hear an idea like that like for some of these cryptids or some of these monsters sea serpents might be my favorite category of cryptids i I just love them and i've been to loch ness a couple times and the problem with sea serpents for me is the fact that much like loch ness and many others you can go decades between sightings and you think what's happening? Where are these things going? What are they doing where they're not spotted for decade after decade? And, or the fact that, you know, they're spotted by two different people who describe it completely different, maybe a giant eel looking versus your traditional 
you know, humpback uh, Loch Ness type. So the more and more I research into the supernatural and have zero answers, more questions than answers, but I'm getting more and more convinced that some of these things are not flesh and blood like we, like some undiscovered species or like you said, a species that we thought was extinct, but maybe there's still a few left over. Because oftentimes I talk to people that have so many bizarre encounters with these things, doing things that no known animal can do or disappearing, or why have a body washed up on the, the shoreline of these things? And that if there's one, is there enough for mating? Do they reproduce on their own? You know, so many questions and I don't know, but I'm, I'm leaning more toward the fact that perhaps they're not just uh, a big sturgeon or something similar to that, that they have to be something much different. At least I hope they are. Same. Same. Your thoughts on Megalodon? Yeah, also all these giant sharks, giant fish, um, whether they're the Leviathan, um, all these creatures... For history, people have been afraid of them out in the water, that these big giant monsters of the deep that will come and get you. And the idea that they're still out there, I like to think that they're still out there. Again, maybe not in the same way killer whales are out there, but they're out there nonetheless. So uh, I love uh, all the sea serpent stories that come from actual possible animals, giant squid and the like. But whether I think you could, you know, capture one of these things and there's a breeding population, I don't know. And um, I was talking with my friend and not name dropping at all, but Jerome Clark, who's mostly known for UFOs, but does a lot of crypto stuff. Him and Lauren Coleman wrote a lot of influential books in the 70s and 80s. And he's really coming to the conclusion that these things are happening, but they're not happening in the way we think they're happening, that to you and myself, if we see something, we firmly believe it's real, that it was there, but it might not have been in the same way as if you see, you know, a car accident down the road. So uh, I'm fascinated by all those those thought experiments of looking at what else could explain these things. We've had a few guests on who have chalked it up to things like, um, you know, interdimensional sort of vibrational um sensitivities or, or ways that these things have sort of existed through time is is um, by being able to hide themselves in plain sight, that kind of thing. And certainly when we looked at some of the national park stuff, um, you know, the idea of, of, you know, time slips is always brought up, which is just fascinating um, to me. And yeah, it's just amazing. And then you start hearing stories, you know, like you hear the story of the silicanth, which is something that was thought to be super extinct and it was just living and we just, we weren't talking to the right people, you know, like it was just being eaten by this small tribe and, and we had no idea. So, um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Um, so you had mentioned the national park. I have a thing with the national parks because so much activity seems to happen in them. Um, has Is this something that you've noticed? Have you noticed more tales coming out of it? And, and what do you sort of, if you have, what do you credit that to? 
a lot of people now are familiar with national park stuff from the missing 411 stuff uh, that they think maybe it's Bigfoot doing all this, but every national park seems to have a lot of great legends, some that don't even fit. Just this summer, I was back in one of my favorites, the Badlands of South Dakota, and they have a Banshee story yeah. there, which if you're going to find an out of place legend, you can't get any more out of place than a, a traditionally Irish legend in the, you know, the Badlands of South Dakota. So I love all these stories, but I think there's some significance in the fact that when we save these places from being developed and being destroyed, um, a lot of it was because they were beautiful nature areas or had some significance of uh, flora and fauna. But another part of that was they were thought to be sacred areas, uh, areas of great importance. So it makes it uh, very plausible to me that they're what John Keel from Mothman Prophecies and others would have called window areas. These areas where a lot of weird things happen, not just one phenomena, phenomenon, but many phenomena uh, happening. So I love it. In national parks, um, I've visited quite a few and I'm always looking for uh, creature legends that are associated or just weird. I'm not so much interested in the disappearances, the mystery uh, missing 411, although I find the, the books fascinating. I'm more there for the, the legends of the things that existed before humans stumbled upon it. What is your favorite national park to go to? Without a doubt, of all that I've been to, um, and it's one nobody ever goes to, uh, Theodore Roosevelt National Park in the Badlands of North Dakota, far northwestern North Dakota. Um, if you like wildlife, almost every time I've ever hiked out there, it's usually you have to turn around because there are too many bison on the trail or uh, bighorn uh, sheep around, elk, um, all kinds of stuff. But it's nobody's there absolutely nobody's there um i've had many times when i've run into two people hiking uh over seven days the same two people on like other trails and you look at each other and say there's no one here what's going on so by far theodore's my favorite it has a lot of haunted stories uh, teddy roosevelt obviously was there as a, a younger man and did his ranching and his spirits thought to be there along with some others but that's my favorite, uh, without a doubt. Um, but there are many, I mean, you can't go wrong at uh, yeah. any of them. Yeah, they're gorgeous places, so. And the, the more I think I can get out and away from people, I mean, go to the Great Smokies, it's very difficult because you like 30 million visitors a year there, but you get into some of these far-flung places and, or even some of the trails that are far-flung in the popular places, and again, it's almost one of those environment things. You could see weird things happening there, that there's something significant about the, this place, which brings us to all the devil names of places that indigenous people recognize these were places where maybe they were sacred or cursed. So, you know, bad medicine, don't go to that place. So uh, Lauren Coleman did a, a one of his books. Um, he put in the back a whole index of uh, devil names throughout the U.S., which was really cool, but that was 20 years ago. You could probably uh, get more today. My my uh, my very best friend and I were just taught he's a he's a conspiracy kind of guy. So so he likes to come into my little 
uh, folklore world sometimes with some, and he was just talking about that. And there's a, there's like a name for it of if the, if the name came first or the, the power of the name actually transforms places into places where bad things happen. Yeah. Does, you know, the seeing equal believing or believing equal seeing type thing where I have a lot of cases, not just devil names and that, but a lot of places where the origin story is completely wrong or embellished or made up, but people still have experiences relating to that when they go there because they know the legend. Um, there's a, a famous one here in Wisconsin of a woman named Kate Blood. She's buried in Appleton, Wisconsin. And if you go to her gravesite, it will bleed uh, blood. It ooze out of the gravestone because she killed her husband and the three kids. But I mean, all you have to do is look at the gravestone to see her husband lived longer than she did. And in fact, she didn't kill any of her children. But the story, people still believe the story and have experiences when they're going there. So I firmly believe that if people think something's going to happen, they're much more likely to have something happen. And for me, the kicker is, now, did they have it happen because they were expecting it or did they open themselves up and were able to experience it or invite it versus, you know, making it up? And that's the tricky question for me. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. That's um, that's almost like like uh, watching like the Slenderman like myth sort of evolve, you know, from from just sort of being this creep of pasta like creepo pasta is that what i just said creepy pasta that yeah creepo creepy <laughs> same thing yeah um evolving from from just this tiny story and then it all of a sudden you know you're getting sightings and you're getting you know stories about it that but it came it came from this like we've been able to watch this thing develop like in real time which is insane to me I mean, it's the whole idea of just a modern twist on tulpas that mm -hmm. if you believe in things enough, you can conjure them, bring them forward. The problem is it seems to be very specific that, you know, we explain away some of these things as tulpas, but then why aren't we seeing Santa running around more often? Because for the Easter Bunny, more people believe in Santa than probably Bigfoot. Um, so, you know, maybe, but who knows? So yeah, I think these these new, my colleague, Kevin Nelson, who I've done a lot of books with, he's actually doing uh, his presentation at Mothman Festival and Van Meter Visitor Festival on like the age of computer uh, cryptids and themes going that we're creating a lot of these, whether it's, you know, uh, Slender Man, which was obviously a totally fictional thing or stories of the Black Hat Man and all these others that are kind of on the fringes. Yeah, um, like the, uh, what was it, the Endless Rooms, what was that? Why can't I think of any? Back rooms? Back rooms, back yeah. Rooms. Yeah, like the back rooms sort of thing. Or what was the one the kids were into? Sorry, uh, the uh, Charlie Charlie, was it? Yeah. Was that yeah, the one? That's one of them, yeah. Okay. okay. The ghost of like bringing a pen or pencil or something and uh, communicate with the spirit through that. Yeah. Sorry, Ashley, like, I cut no, you off. No, no, no. No, I'm sorry, Chad. I was going to say with that, <clears throat> it brought me to a question I had for you. Um, how do you see the field of paranormal research growing and evolving? Do you see any new frontiers or breakthroughs on the horizon? 
Great question. Um, yeah, I would, I think where what I'm seeing a lot in a lot of people that have been doing it for a long time is that when I first got into this, I thought this is going to be easy. I'll explain this case away, figure this one out. And it didn't happen for me at least. So early on, I kind of shifted from looking at these things of, you know, solving them to kind of experiencing the legend figuring out what they mean, how they morph, how they progress, the bigger picture of it all. And I think that's what kept me from burning out. But also I really, the equipment that I use has dwindled over the years that like most people, when I started out, you know, we'd have a van load of equipment where you're setting it up, you're monitoring it, you're breaking it down. Then you go home and watch all of it. And I felt like I was missing out on the legend too much that I was too busy monitoring everything so you know over the years i just kept cutting back so i think it's going to be i think in the future it's going to kind of split where we're going to get more equipment more things that are used to help people investigate this but i'm also seeing almost like a back to basics where i've talked to a lot of people who are like oh no we just sprinkle flour or baby powder on the floor to make sure nobody walks by like they did in the old days um, by candlelight. So I think maybe a fork. What do you guys think? What do you think the future brings? I'm in agreement with with you. I think that technology and, and all the monitoring and all of the devices have cut us off from that ability to be open and that ability to, to be present in the moment if something were to happen. And, and there's just something um, organic missing. We're just missing it. And it, and it, think it's probably a lot of just cutting ourselves off from what we might naturally have um any sort of sensing ability that we might already have um so yeah i think it's i think it needs to go the opposite way of cutting out the technology and whatnot well that's i've people definitely will say you know that um Larry Eisler was talking, he's a sound guy, he's an equipment guy, and he was talking about he has, you know, evidence of hearing somebody, you know, not, you know, the EVPs, but being able to hear them through the mics while it's still all going on. And, you know, so for him, the technology is something he definitely uses, but I've definitely been involved in a lot of tours that people would be relying so heavily on their equipment and they have all of this expensive stuff. They show up with backpacks and vests and everything and they're mad at the end of the night when they didn't get anything or they don't think they saw anything and I'm going what are you talking about I pointed you to where you could hear people talking and whispering or you could see them walking down a path but they were so focused on all their equipment and saying oh it's not working and turning and walking off the other way and I go well that's a shame that that's how you remember tonight (laughs) because I remember it completely differently because they're so reliant and taking that time away from it is so important. So yeah, I think I'm seeing more, you know, as, you know, interacting with people, I'm seeing more kind of that departure for a lot of people. You know, if it's not your thing, if you're not a sound guy, if you're not, you know, if you don't have that expertise, people just kind of putting the stuff down and walking, walking through the spaces and just listening. I like that. So I agree. And with that, I think we're at the top of the hour. Yeah. Nope. I've decided <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm putting my foot down on this one. It is turning back the time. 
<laughs> I'm slip. Mm-hmm. I'm we'll quickly. To- uh, you should get. Do you have Fate? Fate Magazine did a book. I think it's called Time Slips and Out of Time, where they took all their best stories from their magazine over the years of time slips and put it into a, a book. I have it here somewhere, but the title something like Time Slips or other out of time and space. Uh, Rosemary Ann Guiley did the editing of it. So you, if you like time slips and that, that would be a great one. I like them. I just have such a hard time understanding any of the scientific uh, language that is used when <laughs> yeah. talking about quantum physics or time space. And I get a little lost on those. And then I start thinking about Bigfoot and then everything's okay. <laughs> <laughs> So importantly, Chad, we're going to see you again coming up here. Yes. So that's, oh, yes, we, we, we introduced that early on. Um, you're going to be at Great Lakes Paranormal Conference, right? Oh, yeah. In Glen Beulah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So we'll be All there right. just kind of stalking everybody. You know, <laughs> awesome. That's kind of... Already declared it's going to be a paranormal party all weekend. Yes. Um, we're going to do the Saturday 7 to 10 ghost hunt in Sheboygan. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited. Um, so yeah, it's we're my gonna... first one. I'm so I'm so thrilled to go on the first ghost hunt. It's old old times for Kara. She knows what she's doing. I'm going I to just haven't been her. to Sheboygan, so I'm very no, excited. I know. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and Chad's like, yeah, Sheboygan. Very excited. Bring your surfboard. <laughs> Bring your surfboard to Sheboygan. Yes. Why? The they Great surf. Lakes there, yeah. 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 Oh, surf the Great Lakes. Lake. Right it's Wisconsin <laughs> oh. surfing capital. Oh. I was just going to go to the And it'll be October or September. You'll still be warm enough. Balmy. Like yeah. Balmy 40. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. It'll be. No, September's pretty warm, actually. September will be pretty toasty. No, so we'll have to definitely. Are you ta- Are you speaking? Or are you just. I don't want to say just going to be there, but are you speaking? Yeah, I'm doing. I think Sunday I'm doing something on. Wisconsin ghosts, I think. All right. So we have to stay till at least Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be on uh, Sunday. I have to stay till Sunday, but that means I can watch all Saturday stuff. And I know I'm so excited. I, I am so excited to actually have the time to listen to all the speakers. I'm so thrilled. Yeah. And a couple of them have been on the show too. So that's exciting. We're going to run into a couple of people who have been on the path. Pod on the on the podcast. The podcast. Yes. Um, yes, and also who Kara has been on ghost tours with before. Yes. Best friends. I'm excited to see everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's where that was a reference at the beginning where you'll okay. get to see us again. Um, awesome. So everybody, Chad Lewis is going to be at Great Lakes Paranormal Conference, so you should be there. At least get tickets for Sunday or the whole weekend. <laughs> and what else? Are, what else do you have coming up that you want to tell everybody about? I saw a new book. Yeah, yeah, I'm working on new stuff. Just too much. If you just Google, go to my website, you'll find too much stuff. Yeah, like <laughs> like all of us, probably like ten projects in the in the pot stirring. So yeah. Well, I think I saw something very specific to Illinois. Mm-hmm. Well, I just did. Um, my first book was a Wisconsin haunted book, a road guide to haunted locations, and for its twentieth anniversary, I put out a new version of it. Of like 60% new cases and then updated all the old cool ones I wanted to stay in there. And I'm doing that with my Illinois road guide uh, because that's maybe 15 years old now. And as you know, I mean, places change. They, you know, what happens to the haunted forest when it's a target parking lot now? And 
and those type of things. So you got to change it all the time and new cases. And yeah, so I'm redoing an, an old book, if you will. Yep. Yeah, I think that's the one I saw on the website and tremendous, um, uh, tremendous books. They're extremely well written, very easy to read. Um, you know, and the research is is right there. I, I was, was, I am a big fan of, of the book Wendigo and not just because of this, you know, the subject matter, but it was really, really well written. I thank you. And I think out of uh, my 30th book just came out uh, this year. And I think if I'm remembered when I die for anything, I hope it's for the Wendigo research because it was one where it was hands-on traveling the uh, states and Canada to do all the the research. So I, I, I hope that's the one, if anyone, you know, comes to my grave to curse me out, they have the Wendigo with them. Maybe we need to put put on a, a like a, a disclaimer like not a wendigo lies here. yeah <laughs> yes. yeah They're, i'll be cremated so i'll be safe uh, yeah nice. just in case just in case just, that's the wendigo clause don't don't worry about it <laughs> yeah yeah that's great they should have that clause i mean it's a good one Mm-hmm. so what we usually do at the end of the episode um is first if there's anything else that you're working on or that you're going to be at i noticed there's a lot of you have a lot of um lectures and appearances coming up right this yeah it's on the website yeah it's again you've got to go out of your way to avoid me these days because it's um <laughs> which a lot of people do don't get me wrong uh, or you should but yeah it's just so much and just yeah I don't know. And I don't know half of it. When you said you're going to be there, I'm like, yeah, I think so. I know tomorrow night I'm in Milwaukee and that's as far as I know. Uh, Thursday I'm in Minnesota, I think, but I don't go f much farther out than that um, without <laughs> grabbing my calendar and my physical calendar on the wall here. Not Gadget. We will make sure to post uh, your website with the description and with everything associated with sure. with this episode, obviously, and on our website, um, be able to to find Chad in his various speaking locations, um, which there's a, there's a couple that are nearby. I mean, so nearby me, so I probably swing by one of those things because this has just been tremendously enjoyable. Anyway, as I was describing, one of the things that we like to do here is uh, final thought at the end of the episode. And we just kind of give a, a summation of something that we enjoyed or something that we're looking forward to or something that we're interested in. Um, yeah, anything you want the listeners to take back with them after listening mm -hmm. to this. Yeah, um, take back the most of the people that contact me about their experience. They're not actively looking for it. They're just going about their day-to-day -day life and something happens to them. They see something dart across the road or they notice something moving in their house, you know, uh, ghostly spirit. So I always love that, that all of us that are actively seeking it, you know, the majority of people who talk to me are not. And I find that fascinating that you can just be going about your daily life and all of a sudden something uh, takes you out of there. I, my final thought, yeah, lecturer, that's, I, 
I was just, you know, just enjoying listening. And you do do definitely online presentations through libraries, you know, like people, like you said, you have to try to avoid seeing what you're doing. <laughs> and I love seeing what you're doing. So I am so much more likely now. Oh my God, I could just listen to you talk and, and I want to. So yeah, everybody follow, see what he's up to and see what you can jump in on to actually listen to him talk and give these presentations. Me? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> if you want to. No, I do. I think, you know, Chad, what I thought was most fascinating, other than just being wickedly jealous of all of your adventures, was you kept using the word belief. And I know you, you have a psych background. I do as well. And it's really interesting as someone who finds so much joy in the paranormal in in this is it true is it not i personally haven't really questioned my own belief in years belief in what i choose to believe is real or not and and i think that that would be a really interesting exercise for our listeners to think about why we believe in what we believe in because i i think that's and correct me if I'm wrong, Chad, like kind of the puzzle piece that drove you on this adventure, right? 100%. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So thank you. Jenny, did you want to give a thought? Yeah, I have like 10 thoughts, but I'll narrow it down to like one. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I love listening to you, um, you know, reading, reading, uh, the little bit that I have was fantastic. Um, I am a big fan of folklore and mythology and knowing what was going on at the time and why these things might be beliefs and why they might be so scary. And sometimes why, you know, um, I'm so attracted to these ideas, you know, and, and why I'm so happy to believe in things and why I just want magic to be real. Um, but so it was great. And it was great to hear uh, from somebody who is who is actively pursuing this, you know, um, not just as as kind of a side hobby, but as a as a full blown career. And it's fascinating. So yeah, everybody just open up a little bit, you know, maybe what if all those things but thank you again for being on the show i really 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 appreciate it thank you wonderful i'll uh, give my thought and then take us out um chad i want to thank you again just to parallel what everybody says uh thank you so much for coming on our show um definitely are very i think i could also agree with everyone that we're very jealous about what you do and your travels i think you're when somebody says I'm living the dream, I think you're actually doing that. <laughs> so that's wonderful. Uh, I would also love to have you on again. Uh, maybe you can come on when your book comes out or maybe when something cool happens or, or just, you know, if you feel like coming on, just uh, reach out and we'll definitely have you on anytime you want. I feel personally like I could listen to you for hours and hours. And I feel like we just kind of scratched on the surface of so many things that I feel like we could talk about. Uh, I know that just for the like the state parks, uh, Jenny uh, was working on two episodes just on that, and I still feel like we could have got like delved way deeper. 
So National parks, but that's okay. Oh, Whatever. Yeah. yeah uh, so thanks for coming on. Uh, and then to all of the listeners, uh, we're going to be putting some links if you want to check out Chad Lewis and where he's at and what he's doing and where he's speaking. I'm going to make that readily available for you. And outside of that, we hope you have a good week and a good weekend. We'll see you next week. And uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for telling your friend. And have a wonderful night, everybody. Thank you. Bye.